he was never seen again. Even now, more than five decades later, his name still brings up so much mystery and questions with very little answers. D.B. Cooper, the legendary man who didn't just hijack headlines, but an entire plane and got away with it. Polite to the crew, calculated in his demands, he executed a mid-air heist. And then the rehearsed blueprint in his mind became reality and he vanished into thin air. His daring escapade has stumped even the best of investigators. The question lingers, did he survive? I'm Linda with It's a Crime, so now let's get into it. Transport yourself back in time to the early 1970s in the USA, a time of cultural change with President Richard Nixon at the helm. Fashion at the time rocked bell-bottom pants, frayed jeans, tie-dye patterns, peasant blouses and ponchos, all part of the rebellious counterculture challenging authority. The music scene saw the rise of disco, funk, and soul, leaving a lasting impact. Rooted in the hippie movement, the era echoed 60s sentiments of peace, love, and social change. The U.S. continued its fascination with the cosmos after winning the race to the moon in 1969. Whether you believe it happened or not, let me know below. As the 70s unfolded, the Beatles split in 1970, Jimi Hendrix was mourned, and technology introduced floppy disks. In 1971, Charles Manson's trial concluded, economic challenges and protest against the Vietnam War persisted, and the aftermath of the war brought societal divisions. The U.S. faced economic turbulence, stagflation, and the 1973 oil crisis. The return of troops from Vietnam saw ongoing protests and riots, highlighting deep societal divides. In the skies, Northwest Orient Airlines, a key player in the 1971 D.B. Cooper hijacking, began as Northwest Airways in 1926, primarily handling mail delivery. The airline expanded, adopting the name Northwest Airlines in 1934, and achieved milestones such as sponsoring Lindbergh's Japan test flight in 1931 and introducing the Great Circle route in 1947, shortening New York to Tokyo flights. By the 1960s, it was rebranded as Northwest Orient Airlines. It was a respected carrier modernizing its fleet. However, the airline gained global attention for the D.B. Cooper event, marking an unexpected twist in its otherwise strong aviation legacy. Airline flights in 1971 were characterized by a blend of excitement, challenges, and the backdrop of a rapidly changing world. In the early 70s, hopping on a plane was like stepping into a world of charm and glamour. People didn't just board, they made it an occasion, dressing up in their Sunday best, injecting a dose of sophistication into the journey. Security wasn't the fortress it is now. You could stroll in shortly before takeoff without a security saga. Smoking was part of the airborne experience with passengers casually lighting up in designated sections when smoke-filled spaces were the norm. Seats were more spacious back then, boasting extra leg room and wider seats, creating an air of relaxation on board. Complimentary hot meals were also the norm, even on shorter flights, adding a touch of culinary delight to the journey. However, luxury came at a cost. Ticket prices were relatively steeper, making air travel a ritzy affair not everyone could afford. 
Forget about sleek modern planes, though. They flew classics like the Boeing 707 and the Douglas DC-8, each with its own vintage charm, making the entire experience a nostalgic departure from today's flying norms. Now let's go to November of 1971, the day before Thanksgiving. While people are getting ready to get together, celebrate, and give thanks, there's a guy named Dan Cooper with a different agenda and who's about to shake things up. He's about to set the stage for quite an unexpected turn of events and become a remarkable part of history. On the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, as I mentioned, a man using the alias Dan Cooper casually approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon. He purchased a one-way ticket for flight number 305 for $20, set to depart at 2.50 p.m. on a 30-minute flight to Seattle, Washington. Cooper strategically chose his seat at 18E, the last row of the aircraft, which had 36 passengers and six flight staff. This marked the beginning of one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in FBI history. D.B. Cooper, described as a quiet man and appearing to be in his mid-40s, was dressed in a dark business suit, a black clip-on tie, and a white shirt. He carried a black attache case and a brown paper bag. Descriptions later revealed more details about his appearance, including a white olive complexion, brown eyes, black or dark hair with a receding hairline, standing between 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall, weighing approximately 170 to 180 pounds. He wore brown loafer style shoes, a black overcoat or rain jacket, and often sported wraparound style sunglasses during the hijack. After taking his seat, Cooper ordered a bourbon and 7-Up, a very popular drink at the time, and he lit up a cigarette while waiting for the flight to take off. Now, just after 3 p.m., he handed a handwritten note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, who initially assumed it was the man's phone number. Cooper leaned in and whispered, Miss, you better look at the note. I have a bomb. She opened the note and it read, Miss... I have a bomb here and I would like you to sit by me. Stunned, reading the note again, Florence complied, sat next to Cooper, and he revealed what seemed to be dynamite in a cheap attache case. She described them as two rows of four red cylinders, and attached to the cylinders were wire and a large cylindrical battery. Cooper closed his briefcase and then explained his demands, which Florence transcribed in a note and brought to the cockpit, informing the crew of the situation. The note read, I want $200,000 in cash by 5 p.m. Put it in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. Captain William A. Scott directed Florence to stay in the cockpit to observe events. He contacted Northwest Flight Operations to relay Cooper's demands, including four parachutes two front mounted and two back mounted as requested, and the ransom money, $200,000 in $20 bills by 5 p.m. Now, this would have been equivalent to $1.4 million as of 2022. By requesting additional parachutes, Cooper implied he would take hostages, discouraging authorities from supplying faulty equipment. And the pilot and co-pilot then transmitted this information to the Seattle Tower, who immediately involved the police and FBI. With Florence in the cockpit, 
Cooper demanded that flight attendant Tina Mucklow stay with him. She acted as a liaison between Cooper and the flight crew, spending most of the flight by his side. Cooper seemed familiar with the local terrain, making observations about the landscape, remarking at one point that it looks like Tacoma down there as they flew above it. He also correctly noted McCord Air Force Base, which was only a 20-minute drive from the SeaTac airport. According to Tina, she described his demeanor, saying Cooper was not nervous, he seemed rather nice, and he was not cruel or nasty. D.B. Cooper outlined the plan for Seattle. Fuel trucks would meet the plane and refuel, while passengers would remain seated while Florence brought the money aboard and he would release the passengers once he had that money in hand and at which point the parachutes would be brought on board. But the arrival was delayed due to a minor mechanical difficulty and the plane circled Puget Sound to buy time. The passengers were told they needed to burn fuel due to the mechanical issues. While the plane circled, Tina engaged in conversation with DB. Meanwhile, the president of Northwest Orient Management, David Nyrop, approved paying the ransom and commanded all employees to cooperate with Cooper's demands. Tina asked why Cooper had chosen Northwest Airlines to hijack. He laughed and explained, it's not because I have a grudge against your airline, it's just because I have a grudge. He also added that the airline was merely because it suited his needs. Cooper continued with some small talk asking Tina where she was from. She had mentioned originally being from Pennsylvania, but was now living in Minnesota. And Cooper replied that Minnesota was a very nice country. But when she asked about his origin, he became agitated and did not respond. Cooper then asked if Tina smoked and offered Tina a cigarette. She told him she quit, but still accepted the cigarette anyway. Now, at one point during the flight, one of the passengers questioned Tina about the flight delay. And initially, Cooper was said to be amused by the interaction, but then started getting agitated and told him to return to his seat. The guy ignored Cooper, but another passenger convinced him to return to his seat. Tina recalls that the guy was just asking for something to read and was simply bored. But once Tina returned to her seat next to DB, he warned her and said, if that was a sky marshal... I don't want any more of that. Meanwhile, in less than two hours, law enforcement sourced $200,000 in $20 bills with serial numbers beginning with L from several banks and delivered it to SeaTac Airport. They also obtained military-issued parachutes from McCord Air Force Base personnel, but Cooper rejected them and demanded four civilians' parachutes with manually operated ripcords instead. Law enforcement then contacted a local skydiving school and acquired two front parachutes from a local stunt pilot. Now, a bit about the money. Cooper had specific requests for the $200,000 ransom. He preferred it in $20 bills, it was said, adding up to around 21 pounds. And using smaller bills would make it heavier and potentially risky for his planned skydive. Larger bills would be lighter, but they could be harder to use discreetly. Cooper also emphasized random serial numbers, not sequential ones. The FBI did fulfill his request. They provided bills with random serial numbers, but they ensured that all of them started with the code letter L. Now, around 5.24 p.m., Captain Scott informed D.B. Cooper that the ransom had been met and they'd be landing soon. At 5.45 p.m., the flight touched down, and with Cooper's 
Tokyo's permission, the aircraft was parked on a partially lit runway from the main terminal. Following Cooper's instructions, only one representative of the airline was to approach the plane, and only one entrance and exit was to be used utilizing mobile stairs at the front of the plane. Northwest Orient Seattle Operations Manager Al Lee was designated to make the ransom drop. The decision to have him dress in civilian clothes was made to ensure that Cooper did not mistake his uniform for law enforcement. Upon Cooper's instruction, the passengers remained seated while Tina exited the plane and retrieved the ransom money. She carried the money bag to Cooper, still seated in the back row. Cooper then released the passengers while inspecting the money. Now to break the tension, Tina jokingly asked Cooper if she could have some of the money and he agreed and handed her a packet of bills to which she returned to him and explained that they were unable to accept tips due to company policy. And she had said that Cooper had tried to tip her earlier and the two other flight attendants earlier in the flight with his own money, which they also declined. With the passengers safely off the plane, only he and the six crew members remained boarded. Tina made three trips, bringing the parachutes on board as per Cooper's instructions. As Tina brought the chutes aboard, Florence asked DB if she could retrieve her purse from the compartment behind his seat, to which he did agree and told her, I won't bite you. Alice Hancock, who's another flight attendant, then asked if they could leave the plane. His response was, whatever you girls would like. They disembarked the plane and Tina, now bringing Cooper the last of the parachutes, handed him printed instructions for using the chutes. But Cooper said he didn't need them. Now, refueling delays caused tension. A second and third fueling truck was needed and Cooper complained also about the cloth bag he was provided rather than the knapsack he asked for and using a pocket knife, he cut the canopy from a reserve parachute and stuffed some money into the parachute bag. An FAA official requested to meet Cooper on the aircraft, but he declined, became impatient and said, this shouldn't take so long and let's get this show on the road. DB insisted Tina stay on board to help with the operation. Also left on board were the captain, the first officer and flight engineer. Cooper outlined his flight plan to the pilots and said it would be a southeast course toward Mexico City at 100 knots, which is 115 miles per hour, the minimum speed to avoid stalling. He specified a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet, instructed the landing gear to remain deployed and the wing flaps lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin to remain unpressurized. Now, First Officer William J. Ratichak informed Cooper that this would reduce the aircraft's range to a thousand miles and necessitate an additional refueling stop. After going back and forth and discussing various options, they agreed to refuel in Reno, Nevada. Now, Cooper's final instruction was to take off with the rear exit open and the air stair extended. Northwest Home Office, though, raised safety concerns, saying it was unsafe, but Cooper insisted, stating it could be done do it. He conceded not to press the issue and assured them he would lower the staircase once they were airborne. Now, was this confident or cocky? DB sure seemed to know about parachutes since he didn't need the instructions. Did he use them before or did he study it? Let me know what you think below. Now at 7.36 p.m., the flight took off again with two F-106 fighters 
from McCord Air Force Base and a Lockheed T-33 trainer, which was diverted from another mission following what was described as an S pattern to stay undetected by the hijacker. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper instructed Tina to lower the staircase. She expressed her safety concerns about getting sucked out of the plane, and the crew suggested that she secure herself with an emergency rope from the cockpit, but Cooper opposed the idea and said he wanted no one coming to and from the cockpit. Cooper insisted on lowering the staircase himself and instructed her to go to the cockpit closed the partition curtain between coach and first class and told her to stay there and not return. Before leaving though, Tina pleaded with Cooper and she said to him, please, please take the bomb with you. Cooper assured her that he would either disarm the bomb or take it with them. As she walked towards the cockpit, following Cooper's instructions, Tina observed him in the aisle, tying what seemed to be the money bag around his waist. Only four to five minutes had passed from takeoff to her entry into the cockpit, and she remained there for the rest of the flight. Now, do you think the bomb was real or just a ploy? Leave the word real or ploy down below. Around 8 p.m., a cockpit alarm signaled that the aft staircase had been lowered. Using the intercom, the pilot inquired if Cooper needed assistance, but Cooper's succinct response was a single word, no. The crew noted their ears popping due to the drop in cabin pressure caused by the lowered stairs. At 8.12 p.m., just 12 minutes later, the plane's tail section abruptly pitched upward, prompting the pilots to adjust and return the aircraft to level flight. During an FBI interview, co-pilot Ratichak mentioned that the sudden upward pitch occurred near the suburbs of North Portland, suggesting that this might be the point where D.B. Cooper possibly jumped from the airplane. Now, just a note about this staircase. To counter the surge of extortion hijackings after this one, airplanes were later equipped with something called Cooper vanes, specially designed to prevent the lowering of the staircase during flight. And the introduction of these Cooper vanes, along with the widespread adoption of additional safety measures, like the installation of metal detectors across American airports, marked the end for Cooper copy cats. They had to come up with something. Continuing its course to Reno, the Boeing 727 approached its destination. Tina used the intercom to notify DB of their impending arrival and the need to raise the rear staircase for a safe landing. She repeated her message, receiving no response from Cooper. At 11.2 p.m., with the staircase still deployed, Flight 305 landed at Reno Tahoe International Airport. Upon arrival, law enforcement swiftly established a perimeter around the plane, maintaining a cautious distance amid concerns that Cooper might still be aboard with the bomb. Captain Scott searched the cabin, confirming Cooper's absence along with the missing ransom money and the briefcase supposedly holding the bomb. Following a 30-minute search, an FBI bomb squad deemed the cabin safe. This marked the beginning of an extensive FBI investigation they termed Norjack focusing on the Northwest hijacking. Initially, investigators explored leads, suspecting that the possibility that the hijacker might have used his real name, a Portland man actually named D.B. Cooper, briefly became their initial suspect, but was promptly ruled out. Nevertheless, local reporters mistakenly ran a story with the name and the pseudonym D.B. Cooper instead of Dan Cooper, which stuck, becoming the unanimous identifier for the hijacker. And in the whole D.B. Cooper saga, investigators gathered the clues to figure out who this mysterious hijacker really was and what happened to him.
when in 1980, some of the ransom money was found buried along the Columbia River and found by a young boy. Sketches were created based on what people on the hijacked flight saw, and authorities dug into the Boeing 727 plane for any potential hints. Now, during their forensic search of the aircraft, FBI agents uncovered four major pieces of evidence, each directly linked to Cooper, a black clip-on tie, a mother-of-pearl tie clip, a hair actually from Cooper's headrest, and eight filtered tipped Raleigh cigarette butts from the armrest ashtray. But these have seemed to disappear over the years because they are no longer in evidence, which is interesting to me in my opinion, especially with the advances today in DNA and what that could uncover. Now let me know if you know about this and what you know about the cigarette butts missing. Let me know below. Now they even took a close look at Cooper's tie that was casually left behind during the hijacking, hoping it could spill some secrets. And there's more to that we'll do in another video. There's that hair sample also found on the seat. And of course, they poured over the letters he left behind, checking for fingerprints and other details. Several letters were said to be sent by Cooper after the heist. And it was said approximately six in total, some typed, some handwritten, and some ransom style cutout versions. They were all analyzed for authenticity. Most were considered hoaxes and inauthentic, but two of them are said to have been hidden until the 2000s and were said to have been investigated further. But here's the kicker. Even with all that detective work, there is still no smoking gun. And D.B. Cooper's identity and what went down that day are still big question marks, making this investigation one of the ultimate unsolved mysteries in American crime history. And throughout the investigation, the FBI explored over 1,000 suspects, easily eliminating some while facing challenges in definitively identifying others as Cooper. Despite numerous jailhouse and deathbed confessions, no one provided conclusive evidence of being D.B. Cooper. Despite extensive efforts, the identity of D.B. Cooper has remained elusive, and the FBI conducted a thorough investigation that spanned an astonishing 45 years from 1971 to 2016 when the case was officially closed. The D.B. Cooper case has spawned various theories over the years, each contributing to the enduring mystery of the unsolved hijacking. There's a never-ending rabbit hole one can go down into. One prevalent theory proposes that Cooper successfully parachuted and evaded capture, disappearing without a trace. Alternatively, there's speculation that he may have perished during the daring jump, and that the weather that night did him no favors. Other theories explore the notion of D.B. as an insider with aviation knowledge or criminal connections. The possibility of an accomplice and the notion of Cooper disclosing his identity to a chosen few are also subjects of speculation. Now, there is a special convention that's being held every year called CooperCon, where people gather to learn and chat about the case with fellow truth seekers. And this past year was very interesting as a convicted copycat hijacker named Martin McNally, who's now 80 years old, spoke at the convention. And in 1972, in June, he hijacked a plane from St. Louis to Tulsa, demanding $500,000. Unfortunately, he lost his the money during his escape over Indiana. And a few days later, authorities captured him with just 13 bucks in his pocket, leading to a sentence of two life terms. He served 
38 years in prison before being released in 2010. And about the D.B. Cooper case, McNally said, it's a big mystery and a lot of people want to know. It's the evidence that doesn't even show up. There's no evidence to say that he survived or he perished. Nothing. In the world of Skyjackers, D.B. Cooper stood apart. Sure, he held a grudge, but there was a sophistication to his moves, intelligent maneuvers, calculated risks, and a remarkable execution to find him. However, like others, he made mistakes. Was this just luck? Or did a professional background and training factor in? Go ahead and click this video where I dive into the heart of the hijacking after the jump out of Flight 305, just a day before Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you in the next video. Parachutes from the court Air Force Base person. My stomach, my stomach is growling. Oh my god. Tried to eat something before recording, but you know, it happens. He was provided rather than the knapsack he... My god, I can't even talk. Which was diverted from another mission following that... Blah, blah. I don't want to say that with those things again. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.